The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to In Veritate on the Restoration Radio Network. In Veritate is a show containing sermons solely by Bishop Donald Sanborn, and I am your host, Matthew Arthur. We are pleased to present In Veritate free of charge to our listeners by the gracious sponsorship of Most Holy Trinity Seminary. On this episode, Bishop Sanborn will be discussing 50 years of Vatican II and the Lenten fast. And now we present In Veritate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. On December 8, 2015, we will see the 50th anniversary of the closing of Vatican II. On December 8, 1965, Paul VI officially approved of and promulgated the documents of Vatican II. These documents contained and do contain condemn doctrines and assert doctrines which are directly contrary to the church's dogmas. Hence, our war with modernism and the adaptation of Roman Catholicism to the modern world began, if we could put a date on it, on December 8, 1965. Since we know that the authority of the Catholic Church cannot promulgate as Catholic doctrine what is condemned doctrine or which contradicts Catholic dogma. After these 50 years, however, we ask ourselves, what is the final outcome of this struggle? Fifty years, a half century of living in this problem, this problem that has affected our lives very, very deeply. What is the final outcome? The answer is, of course, that we do not know the final outcome. There are two possibilities. One is that God will restore the Catholic Church to its normal state. The other is that we are sliding into the time that is predicted in today's gospel, that is the time of the Antichrist and the subsequent coming of God to judge the living and the dead, and that we will not see a a restoration of the normal life of the church, but that Christ will come and judge all. Those are the two possibilities. We don't know what God has in mind. But I do want to recall to you some principles that should be recalled after these 50 years. The first principle is that we believe in a church 
that is founded by God and which is both infallible and indefectible. We believe in the divinity of Christ. We believe that he founded a church. We believe that the church that he founded is the Roman Catholic Church. We believe that his church will last until the end of time, as he said it would in sacred scripture. And we believe that he assists his church in such a way that its teachings are infallible and that its disciplines are holy. We would not be here this morning unless we believed in such a church, a church that is assisted by God, whose invisible head is Christ himself, and who protects the church from error in everything that is essential to her. Consequently, we believe that there must be a substantial continuity in the church's teachings and disciplines. Just as God does not change, so his teaching does not change, and so the essential disciplines of the Catholic Church do not change. And this continuity of doctrine and of discipline in the church is a sign of the assistance of God to the church. It is a sign that it is God speaking to us when the church speaks to us officially and with authority because the church has the assistance of God. St. Paul speaks about this purity of the Catholic Church and holiness of the Catholic Church in the epistle to the Ephesians. He says that he, meaning Christ, might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In First Timothy, St. Paul calls the church the house of God and the pillar and ground of truth. It could be neither of these things unless God had founded it and unless God gave assistance to it. The second principle is this, that we know from sacred scripture that there will be a great apostasy from the faith toward the latter times. This is said explicitly by St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians. And I will read you the text. He is speaking to the, the Thessalonians who think that the end of the world is imminent at that time. And he's saying to them, no, there are certain things that have to happen before the end of the world. So he says, and we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and of our gathering together unto him, that you be not easily moved from your sense, nor be terrified, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by epistle as sent from us, as if the day of the Lord were at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for unless there come a revolt first, in Greek apostasy, and the man of sin be revealed, meaning the Antichrist, 
the son of perdition, who opposeth and is lifted up above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth, that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity already worketh, only that he who now holdeth do hold until he be taken out of the way. And then the, that wicked one shall be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus shall kill with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Him whose coming is according to the working of Satan in all power and signs and lying wonders and in all seduction of iniquity to them that perish because they receive not the love of truth that they might be saved. Therefore, God shall send them the operation of error to believe lying, that all may be judged who have not believed the truth, but have consented to iniquity. Now, that paragraph is full of very interesting things. First, that the mystery of iniquity already worketh. He's speaking in about 50-something A.D. And that it is being held back, that is, the power of the devil is being held back. He says, only that he who now holdeth do hold until he be taken out of the way. So in God's good time, when, it is, when he sees fit, he will let the devil loose upon the earth for his own good reasons. And the devil will do havoc upon the earth, as we have seen. And the Antichrist will come, and Christ will destroy him. Notice also that he says that, uh, that the seduction of iniquity will come because they receive not the love of the truth. What characterizes our age more than that it does not love the truth? That you could preach the truth to, to them and nothing happens. It's as if you're speaking another language. It does not love the truth that has been given to them for all of these centuries. And so the operation of errors shall be sent to them as a punishment to believe lying. In other words, that God will punish those who have lost the love of the truth by giving them, that is, permitting them to have an operation of error, and I know of no better definition of the Novus Ordo than operation of error, so that they believe lying. And that confirms something that St. Augustine said that when hardened sinners become so hardened in their sin to the a point that they're incorrigible, God permits them to have the very things whereby they will sin. And notice what St. Paul says at the end, 
that, in order that, all may be judged who have not believed the truth, that he will permit them to sink into terrible error and then come and judge them because they did not believe the truth but have consented, as St. Paul says, to iniquity. And these words, if you said them 500 years ago, would have been very obscure. But they are not obscure to us. We see it every day. And it explains the Novus Ordo. Certainly we are surprised to see how God would send the operation of error. But nonetheless, it is there in sacred scripture. The third principle is this. We know from church history that the enemies of the church have plotted her demise by transforming her from within. It would take me perhaps an hour to give you all of the evidence of that from the Freemasons and other enemies of the church, especially from the modernists around the turn of the last century, around 1900, who said one to another, stay in the church, transform the church from within, make it adapt to the modern world, This type of Catholicism that we have now will never endure. And when Pius X repressed them and kicked them out of the church, they said all the more, submerge, stay in the church, because not all of the excommunications or encyclicals in the world will be able to stop this force that we have in the church of transforming her into something that is adapted to the modern world. They all said it. That was their plan. And And submerged they did until the coast was clear. And so both from sacred scripture and from church history, we could have expected this to happen, this terrible devastation of the church from within, enemies from within. We could have easily expected it, and the time was ripe because of the three things that had to happen before the end of the world, according to the Council of Trent, and that is the preaching of the gospel to the whole world, the coming the the great apostasy from the faith and the coming of the Antichrist. When those words were written in the 1500s, none of those things had taken place. Now two of them have taken place. And we can expect the third. The Antichrist cannot come into a world that is not prepared for him any more than the true Christ could have come into a world that was not prepared for him. The foundation of the Jewish people and their prophets and law were all a preparation for the coming of Christ that he be received by them. And so also the age in which we live, which descends into more and more immorality and intellectual sickness as every day goes by. You have only to read the news is a preparation for the Antichrist. 
it is very believable that an antichrist will be desired by this modern world. And so actually what we are seeing is a fulfillment of the prophecies concerning our times. It should not shock us at all. It is another proof of the divinity of the Catholic Church, her divine foundation, her divine assistance, that these prophecies are taking place before our eyes, things considered incredible a hundred years ago. If a hundred years ago somebody said, one day the Pope will, will approve of divorce and remarriage and living together in fornication and of sodomy, you would have said, that's, that's impossible, he would never do such a thing. And yet we have seen this in the past few weeks at the Synod, calling for the approval of these very things. The fourth principle is that the Catholic Church has already proven her divine origin and her divine assistance by her history of doctrinal and disciplinary continuity, meaning she has always remained the same. Despite many attacks, both from within and from without. So despite the attacks from her enemies outside the church and despite the attacks by bad priests, even bad popes, this continuity of doctrine has endured like a diamond, a sparkling diamond that remains always the same. throughout all the centuries. She has proven herself by this life that she is the one true Church of Christ, assisted by Christ. <coughs> Look at what happened to the Protestants. They split up into a numberless group of, of different sects which believe this, that, and the other thing because they have no assistance from God. They are just human beings. And human beings are the dumbest when it comes to religion. Even great civilizations like those of the Egyptians and those of the Mesopotamians and the Greeks and the Romans, even though they had very great accomplishments in other things pertaining (coughs) to civilization, and intelligence, and science, and mathematics were incredibly dumb when it came to religion, worshipping animals and the sun, opening up the entrails of animals as the Romans did to find out who was going to win a battle. Incredibly dumb. Look at some of the religions of the world today. what they believe and all the strange, bizarre things they believe. And this despite great advancements in science and other human things. Human beings err terribly in matters religious. And the Catholic Church has remained steady in the true doctrine received from our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles all the way through. 
The fifth principle is, whatever solution there will be of this problem in the church, it will be by the grace of God. The Catholic Church functions by the assistance of God. It will not be by our efforts. Our work is one of survival. Our work is to become good instruments of God, to become better Catholics in these times as we see our faith deteriorate around us. And good tools that he can use if he needs us, just as the apostles were good tools for the spread of his kingdom. What is important is not numbers. God doesn't care about numbers at all. When the Jews were called to overcome the Amorites under Gideon, 30,000 showed up to battle the Amorites. God got rid of 99% of them because he thought they were unworthy and he chose only 300 to battle the Amorites. But he gave them assistance and drove off the Amorites. It's in Judges chapter 6. God doesn't care at all about numbers. He doesn't care about time. One day is a thousand years for him, as St. Peter says, and a thousand years is as but one day. He has no care of time whatsoever. And just as he can make a little mustard seed grow up into a great tree, he can make a few people into a great church if he wants to. So we cannot look at this in a human way. We must look at it in a divine way. And therefore, we should not seek to compromise with the modernists. If we look around at what has happened after 50 years of Vatican II, 90% of Catholics, that is, people who call themselves Catholics, the 1.2 billion, 90% of them have collapsed into the errors of Vatican II and have embraced the new religion. There is a remnant of about 10% who might still believe the traditional truths of the faith. Of that 10%, most of them want simply a niche of conservatism within the Novus Ordo religion. They want to let pass Vatican II as something Catholic, that all of the nonsense and rot and trash of Vatican II should be put in the same book with all of the holy doctrines that the Catholic Church has held for so many centuries and taught, that that should all be bound together in the same book recognize it as Catholicism, but simply seek to have a side chapel of tradition in the modernist cathedral. That's their solution, and it's human. It is not a divine solution. It is human. It is naturalistic, as if we can compromise with the things of holy faith. They are not ours to compromise with. 
and it is our duty simply to remain fervent, faithful, and uncompromising with the modernists, to remain Catholics, in other words. The Vatican II, the Vatican II and its reforms cannot pass as Roman Catholicism. It must be rejected together with those who have promulgated it. And that's why we take the positions that we take here. In order to preserve a true remnant of Catholics who reject this evil doctrine of the modernists and what they have done, just as your body, when it is invaded by an alien substance, a bacterium, a virus, does not compromise, it attacks right away, it kills the disease and expels it. And it has that ability from God to do that, otherwise we would all die shortly after we were born. And so the church has this resilience to the alien doctrine and to those who promulgate it. And the indefectibility of the church is being realized precisely by this rejection of the apostasy. For this reason, it is so important that Catholics firmly reject the Vatican II apostasy. It is the error of opera the operation of error. And they do so by the grace of God. We see young men who apply to the seminary many times, teenagers who have never known what you know here, who have compared pre-Vatican II to post-Vatican II and discover by the grace of God that there is a terrible discontinuity. They read themselves into what we believe on the Internet. And they are totally convinced they, need, they don't need to be instructed in anything. They see the whole thing by the grace of God. They love the truth, in other words. They take the trouble. They love the truth. God in his time will use faithful Catholics as instruments of his glory, just as he used the apostles and other saints as instruments of his glory. It is for us to be those instruments, those tools of God, and not to seek a humanistic and, and naturalistic solution to this problem, and not to compromise away over a table what we believe with modernists. It is our duty to remain firm in the faith, uncompromising with regard to the apostasy, so that we can be suitable instruments for the glory of God when and if he so chooses. So let us not be like rubber screwdrivers, that is, useless tools that are, can only be thrown away through compromise with Vatican II and the modernists. But let us be firm in the faith, persevering in the hope of the future judgment of mankind. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.
We would like to remind you that you are listening to In Veritate on the Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Arthur, and I am presenting sermons by Bishop Donald Sanborn on the subjects of 50 years of Vatican II and the Lenten fast. We want to remind you that In Veritate is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. And now, for the continuation of In Veritate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. This week we commence once again the yearly Lent. And it is a time when we must do penance. And the first aspect of penance is contrition for sin. In order to understand even the very notion of penance and the notion of the fasts that the church imposes during the season of Lent is contrition for sin. We must have contrition for sin and and contrition means to hate our sins. The very word contrition means to crush. And so it's a very strong word which means a hatred for sin. And so our attitude, our mental attitude in approaching Lent must be one of hatred of sin and the intention of uprooting the habits of sin. For if we are complacent with our habits of sin, it makes those sins all the more deliberate. A habit does not excuse if you are complacent with the habit. If, for example, you know, well, I overeat. It's one of my faults. I overeat, but so what? It's only a venial sin. Then every time you overeat out of habit, that is a more deliberate sin than if you did it merely once. So we have to fight our bad habits if we become impatient or if we use bad language or anything like that out of habit. We have to fight those habits. And this is the time in which to renew the battle. And so penance also requires mortification. When you go to confession, you tell your sins to the priest and you say that you are sorry for these sins that you truly hate them, that's the idea, and that you have purpose of amendment, that is to uproot these sins. And then the priest gives you a penance. And so this mortification, this voluntary performance of activities that make up for what we have done, which is bad, is necessary for this virtue of penance. Why do we purposely and willingly inflict upon ourselves unpleasantness during Lent? It is because we must rectify, that is, make straight what has gone awry. There are the effects of original sin, first of all, whereby we are inclined to do evil. 
where we find doing evil easy. That's the effect of original sin. And although baptism takes away the stain of original sin, it does not take away the effect of original sin. And our whole life has to be a cross in removing the effect of original sin in us. It is a daily activity whereby we bring our bodies into subjection, as St. Paul said in last Sunday's epistle. I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps I become a castaway after I have preached to others. That means lest I go to hell after I have told everyone else that they ought to go to heaven. If he does not correct these evil tendencies of original sin, he too will go to hell. And that is why the Holy Cross is the center of our faith. And in addition to correcting the tendencies of original sin, we have a lot of actual sins that we ourselves have committed willingly. And every time we commit an actual sin, we do a certain damage to the soul morally. If you think of a train that derails when it throws when it's thrown off the tracks it takes the tracks with it it bends the tracks so also morally the soul is damaged through the commission of actual sin and therefore where we have excessively indulged in our own will so now in lent we're going to do uh, to bend our wills back by not indulging we're going to compensate for that excessive indulgence in our own wills by not doing our will. So when we have the craving for the snack, when we want to just do what we would do, we won't. Out of penance, out of mortification, we will also feel the cravings of hunger as a payment to the justice of God, a tiny way indeed, a little, little way, but a payment nonetheless to the justice of God for having offended him. And so the penance and mortification is necessary for eternal salvation. Unless ye do penance, ye shall all likewise perish, our Lord said. And that is why the church attaches the pain of mortal sin to the observance of penance. That is why it's a mortal sin to eat meat on Friday. Not because eating meat in itself is such a terrible thing, but because it is attached to a very important precept of Christ that we do penance. And so the church's laws of penance are serious. And that is why the, we cannot take seriously the Novus Ordo, which has merely two days of fasting the whole year. And that is Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Those are the only days. So this Lent coming up is a holy season, and we should look forward to these penances with enthusiasm. Indeed, our bodies are not enthusiastic about Lent. That's why it's a penance. 
because our bodies would like to just indulge and indulge and indulge. But our souls should look forward to Lent. Look forward to Lent as a holy season, a time in which to put ourselves in spiritual shape again. And so you should make a list of your major faults. Think of what you confess most frequently. Laziness, spiritual laziness perhaps, anger, impatience, envy, avarice, attachment to material things, which is a very common fault today, which most people do not realize they have. But there's a lot of avarice. Make a list of these faults. Examine yourself closely and say, where am I sinning by habit? And then every night, make an examination of conscience and say to yourself, how have I been lazy today? Or how have I been angry today? And you'll find that you have been those things. You will find a number of incidents every day. And do penance for those, say your act of contrition, renew your hatred of those sins and of that habit. And if you do penance faithfully, and if you make these examinations of conscience, if you go to confession frequently, which I recommend during Lent particularly, if you come to the stations, if you do acts of piety, if you increase your whole spiritual life, you will see a gradual disappearance of these faults. You will see improvement. And so the church gives you these Lenten rules. The rules of fasting apply to those who are 21 to 59. That is, if you have achieved your 21st birthday, the traditional rules apply. And if you have achieved your 59th birthday, they no longer apply. The rule is one full meal a day. And at that meal, you may take meat. And other two meals, two other meals, which are light and meatless. And these two meals taken together cannot equal a full meal. Now, notice how I said that. Not the full meal, but a full meal. Some people in order to get around the Lenten rules, stuff themselves at the main meal and then figure, well, I can eat practically anything at the other two meals because I have eaten so much at the main meal. So they might... So actually, Lent becomes a time of gluttony. I, I know people that do this. They eat and eat and eat at the main meal so that they figure, well, they have a lot of ounces at the other meals so that they're still fulfilling the law. And that is not the sense of that law. The, I said a full meal, that is, what would ordinarily be a full meal for you. So, say, a, a, a lady in her 80s might have an idea of a full meal which is a lot different from, say, a construction worker in his 20s. See, so, a full meal for you. So the other two meals cannot equal a full meal for you. 
Now that's that's the uh, that's the law as it was made in the late 40s uh, in this country. The previous law, though, is I think a little easier to observe because it's not as um, uh, fluid and fuzzy, uh, and it accomplishes the same thing. The the older law was uh, 16 ounces at the main meal, which is quite a bit. Uh, two to four ounces at breakfast um, and eight ounces at the other meal. So, uh, for example, a piece of toast weighs an ounce. Uh, A sandwich weighs about six ounces. Depends on what kind of sandwich it is. But uh, I think that's a, an easier way to observe the law. But in any case, the law is the, how I described it, two light meals, meatless, two light meatless meals, one full meal, where the two light meals together, taken, taken together, do not equal the quantity taken at a full meal. Uh, liquids do not break the fast. Medicines do not break the fast. Uh, however, purely vitamins would. You should take your vitamins uh, during, if you're taking vitamins, at mealtime. Because a vitamin is not really a medicine. Uh, it is a nutrition, and that really falls under the idea of a meal. Uh, also, it is permitted to... Can, uh, after you have gotten up from the table, uh, authors say for one half an hour you can still eat something. Like if you, uh, uh, this is after the main meal, you may still uh, eat something for about a half an hour after the main meal. Like uh, put something in your mouth for uh, a half an hour afterwards. Uh, also, make sure that you do not extend the meal too long. For example, that's another way of getting around the law, is staying at the table so long that you you no longer have to, the fast becomes absurd because you stay at the table for four hours or something. Uh, the, the, um, and the, you know, the, the fast is so useful and good for our spiritual lives that you shouldn't try to in any way get around it. It's, it's good. It's, it's an exercise for the soul. So uh, you have to spend a reasonable amount of time at the table, too. But, for example, if you went out to eat, uh, the, the authors say three hours is the greatest extent of, of a main meal. And that's plenty of time. Uh, certain people are dispensed. Uh, those whose state in life would prevent them from fasting, that is, where the fasting would impede them in their duties of state in life, they are dispensed. For example, nursing or pregnant mothers. Uh, Authors say teachers who teach the whole day. Because that requires so much energy, uh, they are dispensed. Laborers, construction workers, uh, people who who work with their bodies and their hands the whole day, 
the whole day, not if you do an hour's worth of work or something, but the whole day, if you're, you're engaged in a full working day in manual labor, you're dispensed. And also people with illnesses which require them to eat frequently, if they have any kind of stomach illness, ulcers where they're required to eat frequently, or also diabetic people where they're required to eat frequently, Clearly, anything like that dispenses. You don't even have to ask. The only time you might ask the priest is if you are in doubt. If you're in doubt as to whether your case is one of dispensation. If, however, you are dispensed, you should tell people that you're dispensed lest you scandalize them. You should say, I have a stomach problem or I have this or that, and therefore uh, I cannot observe the fast. Uh, lest you scandalize other Catholics. You certainly won't scandalize Novus Ordo people uh, nor uh, worldlings in general, but you might scandalize um, other Catholics and you should let them know. That's true of anything. St. Paul says we cannot give scandal even when there's the appearance of scandal. Even if we're doing something perfectly okay, uh, if there's the appearance of scandal, we can't do it. So let us then resolve to uh, do an enthusiastic Lent to take on these penances generously to increase our works of piety so that we arrive at Easter Sunday with a charity of soul that is more intense. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Thank you for joining us on In Veritate. If you have any questions for Bishop Donald Sanborn or feedback on this episode, please contact us at inveritate at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to Bishop Sanborn. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful or beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary or even simply an Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Matthew Arthur. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.